Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 124th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. I tell you, Denise, it's getting harder and harder to say those episode numbers. They're getting bigger and bigger. Oh, that's not so hard for me. I think that's pretty cool. It is pretty mm-hmm. cool. And on this episode, we have a really cool place to bring to you. Has a lot of really sad history behind it, which has led to a lot of incredible hauntings. And that is the Battle of Antietam. So we're doing a haunted event on this episode. This was a location that was suggested to us by our listener, Rebecca Johnson. And we had some research assistance from Stephen Pappas. Before we present that to you, we would like to point you in the direction of our website, historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us an email, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we got this message from Heather. Good day, Diane and Denise. I usually listen to one podcast each night, but I changed up my game today and listened while I worked today smiling still. Thank you for putting your heart and soul into each podcast. The people who criticize you for saying words wrong just suck in general at life. Let the first sinner turn the next sinner into a salt pillar. You go, ladies. She also suggested some great places in western Pennsylvania. And we also heard from Rebecca Miles on our website. I love your podcast. I also love how you respond to everyone. I also got a personal welcome on the Facebook page from Diane. I felt like you actually cared and appreciated that I joined your group. I've never gotten that from any other Facebook page. And may I just say that's thanks to all of our Spooktacular crew as well. We have a core group of you, and there's a lot of other people that jump in as well, especially a lot of the newbies I've noticed like to welcome people too, because it is so great to be welcomed in when you come into a place. Thank you, you guys, for being so welcoming like you are. We just really appreciate that. It's hard for us to keep track of everything. That's part of the reason why we've got Heather and Josh as administrators for the group, because it's just so hard to keep track. We want to make sure that when people ask to come into the group that we get them as quick as we can, and then welcome them as quickly as we can because all of you are very important to us. Lucas Antoniak, and I hope I said that right, has sent us an email. I've been enjoying your podcast these past few weeks after looking for something different to listen to while I'm at work. I love the balance you have in sharing history and the weird things that go bump in the night. You both make a great team and I've learned a lot listening to your show. I even find myself going home after work and telling my wife new facts I've learned each day. Please keep up the great podcast because you're making my work day better. Well, thank you, Lucas, and uh, say hi to your wife for us and hopefully she enjoys some of the facts you're bringing home. Caitlin sent us an email letting us know that she enjoys the show as well. And she's visually impaired, Denise, and she sent us some chilling and strange experiences. And there were so many of them that I asked her if it'd be all right if I saved them for our Halloween special, because that's one thing we love to do for the Halloween special. Caitlin went on to say that she would love to meet us sometime because she knows that we love meeting up with listeners. And yes, indeed, we do. 
We'd love to meet up with you sometime, Caitlin. A lot of people assume that if somebody's visually impaired, all of their other senses are enhanced. I'd written back to her and said something along the lines of, I wonder if that's why you've been having some experiences or something because your senses are more enhanced. She wanted to let me know that as for heightened senses, that's really just a myth. Instead of heightened senses, it's more of a person focusing with their other senses. For example, say you wake up for some reason at night, you were listening more because your sense of sight is limited. So I thought that was very interesting because I was in error thinking that. I just thought, well, all the other ones are more enhanced. And she's like, not really. It's just that you are more focused on them, I guess is the way to put it. Speaking of meetups, Denise, we have made a decision of where our road trip in 2017 is going to be. We were going to be going north to Canada, but some things have changed along those lines. So we've decided that we're going to take a more southerly route because I have been dying to go to New Orleans. Yes, and I love New Orleans. And we figured since we're going in that direction and there's so many of you in Texas that we probably should make it all the way to San Antonio. So probably September of 2017. And what I would love to do is to set up more of a, not just a meetup of a tour in New Orleans, but to really have an event that we do there or something. Carrie Rowling sent us an email. I love your podcast. I've been catching up on old episodes and thought I would recommend Mount Moriah Cemetery in Deadwood, South Dakota. It's the burial location of Calamity Jane and Wild Bill Hickok. And I let Carrie know, well, we just happened to have had Deadwood suggested to us a little while ago. So it's definitely on the list. And so we will definitely check out that cemetery when we're doing our Deadwood episode. I became a believer in the paranormal because of this cemetery. On one of my first visits, I went to see Seth Bullock's grave, which is located 750 feet above the cemetery. On my way back down to the cemetery, I cursed him for being up such a steep hill. Within minutes, I tripped. Or maybe you just walk like I do. I would have found this just a coincidence if not for the fact that when I got home, my TV started changing channels on its own. This went on for weeks until I was able to make the trip back to the cemetery and Seth Bullock's grave. I asked his wife to make him leave me alone and never had any more issues. This was 15 years ago and I still remember it quite vividly. I love how she goes after the wife. Hey, (laughs) tell that guy to leave me alone because we all know that there's always the real boss. I love that too. (laughs) I'm going to get his wife to make him stop. And we got a message from Alicia Taylor. Oh my God, love your show. I listen while doing dishes, walking, and of course, crocheting. The recent episode on the Athens Asylum was awesome. My brother lived in Athens for years, and it is a funky, artsy, alternative college town with a rich history. A house he lived in was bricked by a local artist, and it was wavy all the way around. And talking about mounds, my brother took me to see a few in neighborhoods, like mounds in between the houses and kids playing on them and riding bikes on them. As a person who appreciates Native history, this totally floored me. We also drove to see the ridges, and the buildings were beautiful. When I asked him, if the university was going to make them into dorms, obviously a time before what's housed there now, it was the late 90s. My brother just laughed and said no one would move in. Too haunted. I really appreciated the show. Please keep up the great work, ladies. And she said that her brother always talked about how haunted the whole town was because it had been built literally on Indian burial ground and how creeped out he was doing repairs in a rental house he and his wife owned. I said, wow, you think it's haunted? He replied, I know it is. And she gave us a couple of suggestions in Phoenix, locations in Phoenix. So thanks, Alicia. And then everybody will recall our wonderful truck driver from Dananda, Amber. She wanted to let us know that she had taken this tour with Shanks Pony Tours down there. And she and her fiance and her best friends went on a tour there last year and just found it to be so much fun. 
And she said, much like your podcast, historically informative fun. However, it was very cheesy. Like yourselves, we are open-minded skeptics. However, the cheesy ended for me when Patty, the tour manager, was pulling another, excuse me, sir, can you come back over this way? I want to tell you about the caretaker. She was facing us, so looking at us and behind the group. We were at the back and knew no one was behind us. So it's like this person who's guiding them is talking to somebody behind them who there's nobody there. I thought, wow, what a great way to plant the seed in people's minds. Well played, Patty. Well played. My hubby, who was holding my hand, but also looking behind us to where Patty was talking, says, geez, he's tall. Then went ice cold. There was nothing there. Patty proceeds to tell us about the caretaker back in the day who was nearly seven feet tall and still keeps an eye on the building. Oh my gosh. Hubby went ice cold again and stayed pretty quiet after that. He said it was more like a shadow, but was pretty freaked out. We didn't bring it up with her because she was doing it all the time. Really hamming it up is what I put it down to until that happened. He didn't want to say anything. I think it really upset him. He's quite a stoic guy. And she said people see the tall man all the time. Nothing interesting happens to me, lol. So Amber didn't see him, but her hubby did. Also want to do a shout out to Allie on Twitter. We met through the hashtag haunted hour, which I try to get to on Saturday nights. The UK hosts it's about 5 p.m. Eastern time. I believe it's 10 over there in the UK. And so I met Allie through this and she was telling me about a great haunted hotel there. She sent me a lot of the experiences that they've had. So we're going to have that on a future show. We put bonus cast 17 up, Denise, for the people who are supporting us on Patreon and our PayPal supporters. Weird distortions again. Just like I shared on one of our other episodes here with the Croke Patterson Mansion, we had some weird distortions when I went inside of the, the vault, vault at the Blake Street vault. And uh, wow, it was very, very weird. And the tunnel as well, right? Exactly. And it was really loud. So I don't know. Pretty weird stuff. Want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca. Hillary. Hi, Hillary. Jen. Hey, Jen. David. Hi, David. Amelia. Hi, Amelia. Kurt. Hey, Kurt. And Caitlin. Hey, Caitlin. Denise, doing this episode, we're going to do something a little different with it. I wanted to help people to really get into the story behind the Battle of Antietam. And the best way to do that is to do it through the eyes of the people who were there. So throughout this episode, we are going to be sharing with you quotes of people who were actually at the battle. And I think it's just going to really bring everything home to you. So this is going to be a bit of a sad one and a tough one. But are you ready to do it, Denise? I definitely am. All right. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The Moment in Oddity is by Bob Sherfield. Located some 40 miles north of London, in the small market town of Royston, a strange discovery was made by workmen in 1742. In August of that year, while digging a post hole for a market bench, the men hit a solid surface. Clearing the soil away, they discovered that the object that they had hit was a buried millstone. 
Needing to remove it in order to finish their work, they dug round it and pulled it up. What they found underneath surprised them, for instead of seeing bare soil, what presented itself was a large shaft, two feet across and with niches cut into the wall forming a type of ladder. A young boy was volunteered to make the initial descent, and at the bottom of the shaft he found a cave, half filled with soil and rubbish. When cleared away, they found fragments of a drinking cup, some small unmarked pieces of brass, and decayed bones with a skull. The cave they found was clearly man-made and bell-shaped, roughly 25 feet tall and 17 feet wide. People have put forward the idea that it was modeled on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The walls are covered in religious medieval carvings, including St. Christopher, the patron saint of travelers, St. Catherine, St. Lawrence, and another which is either St. Michael or St. George. On another portion of the wall is a large section representing Christ awaiting the resurrection, with Mary Magdalene sitting on a stone rolled away from the entrance. There is also a long row of figures that haven't been identified, and below the image of St. Catherine are male and female figures of Richard I, the Lionheart, and his queen, Berengaria. It has been suggested that these carvings are related to the Knights Templar, though the details on some of the figures, such as the presence of plate armor, place them as being made some 100 years after the disbanding of the order. Though perhaps a secret chamber is exactly what a heretical group in hiding would need. Other explanations are that Augustinian monks from the nearby priory used it as a storehouse to keep products cool, and this could explain the religious carvings. One final explanation is that a price in house mentioned in the cell record of 1540 may relate to the cave, indicating that it was used as an obliet or a dungeon. Whatever the origins of the cave may be, the fact that it was only one foot below the surface and had been hidden for centuries and has no record to what it once was certainly is odd. Welcome. We have been expecting you. <laughs> this day in history. This day in history is by April Rogers Crick. On this day, May 14th in 1804, the Corps of Discovery, also known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition, left St. Louis, Missouri to explore the undiscovered lands of the West. President Thomas Jefferson commissioned his private secretary, Meriwether Lewis, and William Clark, an army captain, to lead the expedition into what is now the U.S. Northwest. Approximately 45 men, although only 33 men would make the full journey, traveled up the Missouri River in a 55-foot keelboat and two smaller boats. A French-Canadian fur trader named Toussaint Charbonneau, accompanied by his young Native American wife, Sacagawea, joined the expedition in November. The group wintered in present-day North Dakota before crossing into present-day Montana, where they first saw the Rocky Mountains. Sacagawea's tribe, the Shoshone Indians, met them on the other side of the Continental Divide and sold them horses for their journey down through the Bitterroot Mountains. In canoes, they passed through the dangerous rapids of the Clearwater and Snake Rivers, soon reaching the calm of the Columbia River, which led them to the sea. They arrived at the Pacific Ocean on November 8, 1805. The Lewis and Clark expedition were the first European explorers to travel across the new land by an overland route from the east. Pausing for the winter, the explorers began their long journey back to St. Louis. Almost two and a half years later, on September 23, 1806, the expedition returned. They brought back with them a wealth of information about the unexplored region, 
as well as valuable U.S. claims to the Oregon Territory. History Goes Bump Podcast. The Battle of Antietam was a 12-hour fight that would go down in Civil War history as the bloodiest day of the war. Many would say this was the bloodiest day in American history. The setting would be a cornfield that contained a lonely little white church near the Antietam River. General McClellan's army would clash with General Lee's, sending the Confederates away in a draw not worth continuing to fight. This had been General Lee's first push into the North. The battle would leave President Abraham Lincoln the opening he needed to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. It stands to reason that such a violent day would lead to stories of hauntings on the battlefield and in the surrounding buildings, including many homes used as field hospitals. Join us as we explore the events and hauntings of the Battle of Antietam. Dawn broke quietly on September 17, 1862 in Sharpsburg, Maryland. Joseph Chaplin had come to this area in 1763 and established a settlement next to a great spring. He named it Sharpsburg after Maryland Governor Horatio Sharp. Settlers were English and German and the population soared. When George Washington became president, he looked at the area near Sharpsburg as a possible location for the new American capital. The Chesapeake and Ohio Canal came to town in the 1830s, and industry grew as much-needed jobs were brought to the region. It would be on that September morning in 1862 that the Civil War would bring together two armies of men, citizens of the same country to battle on a day that would leave so much blood soaking into the ground that one would think the corn that would grow here again would bear red ears. Major General George McClellan began leading his Union Army of the Potomac into the Sharpsburg area on September 15th, and the buildup continued through the 16th. General Robert E. Lee had gathered his Confederate Army on the high ground west of Antietam Creek on September 15th. Lieutenant General James Longstreet was a successful Confederate general, and General Lee referred to him as his old war horse. It would be Longstreet who would tell General Lee at the Battle of Gettysburg that his strategy was wrong, but he would go on to supervise the disastrous Pickett's Charge. I think everybody remembers that from the Gettysburg episode. Exactly. He was at the Battle of Antietam and wrote on September 15th, quote, On the forenoon of the 15th, the blue uniforms of the Federals appeared among the trees that crowned the heights on the eastern bank of the Antietam. The number increased, and larger and larger grew the field of blue until it seemed to stretch as far as the eye could see. And from the tops of mountains down to the edges of the stream gathered the great army of McClellan, end quote. The Confederates were clearly outnumbered. Rain fell on the night of the 16th, seemingly foreshadowing the devastating battle to come. Both sides gathered their troops and readied. Men slept with all their gear on among the rows of corn in David Miller's fields. Private Miles C. Hewitt of Company B of the 125th Pennsylvania Infantry wrote, quote, We were massed in column by company in a cornfield. The night was close, air heavy, some rainfall. The air was perfumed with a mixture of crushed green corn stalks, ragweed, and clover. We made our beds between rows of corn and would not remove our accoutrements, end quote. One can only imagine what the residents in the area were thinking on that evening 
knowing that the next day would bring much bloodshed to their community. I can remember just the feeling I had when, I think it was Daddy Bush, when he had announced that we were at war and just listening to it on the TV and how it felt so like surreal and just weird to hear those words coming out of the TV. And this was back when I was in college. So I can't even imagine if you're sitting there watching all these people come in knowing that there's going to be all this fighting like right there, right in your city, not somewhere else. That would just be so, I don't even know the feeling that people would have with that. Well, and to really give you a visual for this, I'm going to see if I can find a map of it to include in the show notes. But Denise and I stayed at my sister's farm. And so out there, you've got lots and lots of acres between these farms. And I'm trying to think there's one, two, three, four. I know for sure there's four farmsteads that are right here where this field is. There's probably more. I'm not an expert, so bear with me. But so you've got at least four farmhouses where people probably are at home looking around going, "Uh uh-oh, what's about to go down here? That'd be like having people in our backyard getting ready to fight. That, yeah, that would just be crazy. So go ahead and close your eyes for a moment. Unless you're driving, of course, please keep them open. And let us set the scene for you of those first shots fired, according to the record of the 35th Massachusetts Volunteers. Our first fire was rattling volley, and then came the momentary interval occupied in loading. The rifles were, of course, muzzle loaders with iron ramrods. The cartridges were new and the brown paper of the toughest description so that strong fingers were required to tear out the conical ball and the little paper cap of gunpowder. Emptying these into the muzzle and ramming home and capping the piece took time, seemingly a long time in the hurry of action. Smell the gunpowder in the air, hear the shots fired and the voices of men screaming. There are orders being shouted from all around and you're just trying to get your gun loaded again. Your fingers tremble, gunpowder spills down the leg of your pants, and you see a cannonball hit the ground far too close to your position. Smoke is everywhere, as well as those screams, the screams of the dying. Before the day ends, thousands of those screams will have quieted forever. And that gunpowder and smoke is one of the things that led to this being such a devastating battle. On top of that, there was a thick fog hanging out in the field. So these guys can't really see anything. And you can just imagine the chaos on the battlefield trying to hear. It's interesting when you talk about a general being at a battle. Before we really started looking at the history of these battles, Denise, I was one of those people who just assumed, well, you had one general and he was in charge of everything and he controlled the whole deal and he was the main guy. But when you look at a lot of these civil war battles and such, there could have been eight or ten generals on that field. You have your two big generals, the main ones. You've got McClellan and Lee here who have the last say on everything, but each of these regiments has their own general with them as well. And so all of them are yelling different things. I love that description by these Massachusetts volunteers here because in our modern era, we don't stop to think that it wasn't just putting in a whole clip. It is, you've got to load that one ball, get the gunpowder in there, the paper, pack it down. It did took time. Union Major General Joseph Hooker's forces began General McClellan's plan of attack to go after the left flank of Lee's forces. General Hooker had 8,600 men under his command, which wasn't many more than the 7,700 men belonging to General Stonewall Jackson, whom they were looking to attack on the left flank. When Hooker's men emerged from the woods, they were met by what General Lee himself later referred to as artillery hell. As the majority of his men were entering the cornfield on the battle site, Hooker noticed the glint of Confederate bayonets in the field and immediately called back his infantry. He then unleashed his own barrage of artillery and the field was said to have erupted into mass chaos. 
The air was covered by a thick layer of smoke and artillery fire, causing low visibility at points and lack of efficient hearing. Men were beating each other to death with the butts of their rifles, and bayonets were slashing through the air all around the men. Officers were riding through the mess, shouting orders to the men, all of which fell on deaf ears as they could not hear over the blasts, and may have been more concerned with the fact that their rifles were overheating from constant fire. Confederate Lieutenant Colonel Sandy Pendleton served under Stonewall Jackson and had served with distinction at the Battle of Bull Run and at Harper's Ferry. He would ultimately accompany General Jackson's body to Lexington for burial after the general was killed at the Battle of Chancellorsville. He wrote of his experience at Antietam, quote, Such a storm of balls I've never conceived it possible for men to live through. Shot and shells shrieking and crashing, canister and bullets whistling and hissing, most fiend-like through the air, until you could almost see them. In that mile's ride, I never expected to come back alive, end quote. General Jackson's group were fighting in the area near the Dunker Church. Private J.D. Hicks of Company K of the 125th Pennsylvania Volunteers wrote, Under the dark shade of the towering oak near the Dunker Church lay the lifeless form of a drummer boy, apparently not more than 17 years of age, flaxen hair and eyes of blue and form of delicate mold. As I approached him, I stooped down, and as I did so, I perceived a bloody mark upon his forehead. It showed where the leaden messenger of death had produced the wound that caused his death. His lips were compressed and his eyes half open. A bright smile played upon his countenance. By his side lay his tenor drum, never to be tapped again. In a scene fitting for a battle area outside a church, Army correspondent Charles Coffin wrote, I recall a Union soldier lying near the Dunker Church with his face turned upward and his pocket Bible open upon his breast. I lifted the volume and read the words. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Upon the flyleaf were the words, We hope and pray that you may be permitted by kind providence after the war is over to return. You can only wonder, was that his parents who'd written that? Dunker Church was built by Dunker Farmers in 1852 on land donated by Samuel Muma. The church would become a field hospital for the Confederate side. When the Confederates left, the Union used it as an embalming station. The church was heavily damaged, but after major repairs, it continued to serve the area as a place of worship. After two hours of fighting, the Union had lost 2,500 men in the cornfield alone, and more would perish as the field remained a bloody stalemate. As Hooker's men pressed on to another area of the field of battle, a Confederate sharpshooter couldn't help but notice General Hooker's conspicuous white horse and managed to fire a shot off that hit the general in the foot. He was removed from the field of battle, and this was considered a huge loss to the Union forces. After four hours of fighting, it appeared that this battle would end in a stalemate, with neither side accomplishing any kind of decisive victory. Army correspondent Charles Carlton Coffin wrote of the battle he was witnessing, quote, It was no longer alone the boom of the batteries, but a rattle of the musketry. At first light pattering drops upon a roof, then a roll, crash, roar, and rush, like the mighty ocean billowing up upon the shore, chafing the pebbles, wave on wave, with deep and heavy explosions of the batteries, like the crashing of the thunderbolts, end quote. In the center of the battlefield was the sunken road. It was a key defensive position, and the Union forces led by General Sumner managed to pierce the Confederate forces under General Daniel H. Hill that were holding the road. Even though the Confederates were taking heavy losses, 
Colonel John B. Gordon of the 6th Alabama told General Lee that the men are going to stay here, General, till the sun goes down or victory is won. Gordon himself would be wounded six times. The final shot knocked him out, causing him to fall to the ground with his face in his hat that was quickly filling with blood. If not for a hole in the hat, Colonel Gordon would have drowned in his own blood. There were so many casualties on the sunken road that it has come to be known as Bloody Lane. On either side of the road were the farms of the Muma, Roulette, and Piper families. These would become field hospitals. The Union lost 3,000 men on Bloody Lane and the Confederates, 2,600. General Ambrose Burnside's forces made a strong push towards the end of the afternoon. They fought to cross a stone bridge over Antietam Creek and took major casualties in doing so. As they began to make headway across the bridge, a new brigade of Confederate troops led by General A.P. Hill arrived from Harper's Ferry and pushed Burnside's men back across the bridge from which they came. The battle ended in the evening as men on both sides tended to their wounded. Despite being outnumbered, Lee and his forces continued to skirmish with the Union forces while they evacuated all of their other forces to the south. The Union, in a mistake that is still not understood by many historians, did not take chase. The Union also had not used its full power in the battle, with only about three-fourths of their troops seeing action. This made the numerical advantage they had over the South less pronounced and ended with the battle being a draw. Despite that, the Union claimed victory and it ended up being a turning point in the war, but not without cost. At the end of the day, it estimated that there were 22,717 casualties, 12,401 for the Union, and 10,316 for the Confederates. This fact has earned Antietam the moniker of the bloodiest day in American military history. That's 23, almost 23,000 people were either killed or wounded on that day. That's a lot of ammunition. And I heard the sunken road, it was almost like a crapshoot. There were men almost in a hole and you were just shooting down at them, just picking them off. And General McClellan has come under a lot of criticism because he was a very cautious general. And you see it in his plan here. Not only did he not chase after Lee, but he also didn't use his full force. And it makes you wonder why. A snapshot of some devastating numbers from the day. The 6th Georgia entered the cornfield with 250 men and left with 24. Can you imagine? Not even that. uh... The rest of the Georgian troops lost 50% of their men and all of their field officers. The 1st Texas Infantry lost 82% of its men. And there were 36 casualties a minute for the 12 hours of fighting. Oh my gosh. 36 in a minute. Care for the wounded happening on the battlefield had really only started during the Civil War. Dr. Jonathan Letterman was a pioneer in battlefield medicine, and he was assigned to the Army of the Potomac. He started the process of assessing the wounded that we know today as triage, and he implemented the 1st Ambulance Corps. This battlefield evacuation plan was started at the Battle of Antietam. Dr. Letterman kept the casualties at Antietam from going even higher. George Allen of Company A of the 6th New York Volunteers wrote, quote, Comrades with wounds of all conceivable shapes were brought in and placed side by side as thick as they could lay, and the bloody work of amputation commenced, end quote. Army correspondent Charles Coffin finished his thoughts on the battle, writing, quote, Both before and after a battle, sad and solemn thoughts come to the soldier. Before the conflict, they were of apprehension. After the strife, there's a sense of relief. But the thinned ranks... The knowledge that the comrade who stood by your side in the morning never will stand there again bring inexpressible sadness, end quote. 
Even though there was no clear winner, the Battle of Antietam gave President Lincoln the leverage he needed to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. He had wanted to do it earlier, but he did not want it to appear to be a desperate measure. The executive order was given on January 1, 1863. The proclamation changed the legal status of enslaved people to free. This gave freedom to slaves in 10 states. States not in rebellion were not included. This freed 3 million of the 4 million slaves in the country. But it did not outlaw slavery and did not give slaves citizenship. These would come later. It guaranteed that any slave that could make it to the North would be free. There are some who wonder if President Lincoln had done this because he wanted to save the Union or because he sincerely wanted the slaves to be free. President Lincoln had written to Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune before issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. And he wrote, If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who could not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. I have here stated my purpose according to my view of official duty, and I intend no modification of my off-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Some point to this as President Lincoln just caring about the Union. The truth was that the President was a brilliant strategist. He knew he needed to get the white supremacists in the North on his side, and he believed cloaking the proclamation in a goal of saving the Union would make it palatable to everyone in the North. The president clearly stood on the side of abolishing slavery as he has made it very well known when he campaigned and throughout his presidency that he desired for all men to be free in America. With all the pain and loss that took place on that day in 1862, it's no wonder that there are reports of strange occurrences around the battlefield. The notorious cornfield itself was planted upon pure limestone and the bridge had limestone deposits all around it. The battle began with some of its first shots being fired from Dunker Church. Some of the most memorable photos from this battle include the Dunker Church in the background. Many EVPs have been recorded at the church. There are multiple reports of a shadowy figure being seen in the left corner of the building. People have reported strange sights at Burnside's Bridge, which was mentioned earlier as well. This was a site of great loss in the battle, and many soldiers were buried in large, unmarked graves near the bridge. Visitors often report seeing blue lights dancing around the bridge and the sound of a military drum cadence. Disembodied shouts and screams break the silence. You can just see with all the emotions that were taking place that day amongst all the pain and screams and death and fear, put all that on top of limestone and you just have hauntings a-brewing. I mean, it is the perfect storm, as they say. The sunken road area of the battlefield, also known as Bloody Lane, is believed to be the most haunted location on the site. Bodies were stacked four and five feet deep when the fighting was done. People claim to hear gunfire and smell gunpowder when walking the road. There are no fires nearby or guns being fired, so there is no reason for these sensory experiences. One man reported a scene in which several men were running down the road toward him dressed in Confederate uniforms. He stood and watched the men, excited that he had stumbled across reenactors on his visit. 
He was then shocked as a few yards in front of him, the men vanished. There was also a report of strange singing in the fields surrounding the road. Some Baltimore schoolboys were walking the road one day when they thought they heard a group singing fa-la-la like in the Christmas carol deck the halls. They saw nobody around and only later were told that this was the site of the death of an Irish brigade, the Fighting 69th of New York, who were known to sing a Gaelic battle song that went fa-a-ba-la, which means clear the way in Gaelic. With pale of right and the pan of life shall last sturdy and keys place and hollow. Here a Celtic race from their battle is charged to the shout of Bavala. That would be really, really creepy to hear that many voices. This makes you think that this would be a residual thing for sure. And I could see how fa-a-bala would sound like fa-la-la-la-la. Especially if you're familiar with Deck the Halls, but not the Gaelic song. The Philip Pry House overlooks the battlefield. General McClellan claimed the house for the Union, and General Israel B. Richardson died inside the home. The Pry House caught fire mysteriously in 1976, and it was during the Restoration that people started experiencing eerie things. A woman in old-fashioned clothing was seen by several different people. One time she was seen by workers standing in an upstairs window in the room where the general had died. The workers ran up to get her out of the house. Not only did they not find her upstairs, they realized that the floor had been ripped up, so there was nowhere for anyone to stand. It is believed that the woman is General Richardson's wife. She had stayed at the house and cared for him for the six months it took for him to die. Phantom footsteps are heard on the stairs as well. And one of the reasons why, Denise, it seems like all of a sudden these haunting experiences started happening after the restoration was because the house had been abandoned and nobody went into it. So there was nobody to experience anything. And so it was when people started coming into the home and doing stuff that all of a sudden, so this woman who might be this general's wife, if she's really there, could have been there all those years. It's just nobody had seen her. Right. And is a ghost not a ghost until they've been seen? I think not. And again, as we like to say, these workers have no reason to lie about this. And I can only imagine you're thinking, what are you doing in the house? Get out of there. And you go up there and there's no floor. Okay, where did she go? And there's nowhere for somebody to have even stood. So Right, because that's the stuff that even true skeptics would have a hard time. Because exactly. like, if there had been a floor, it could have been somebody who ran out the back, you know, going, oh, gosh, I'm going to get in trouble for trespassing. But no floor, nowhere to stand. And more than one person saw her. So then it starts to lean you towards the side of believer a little bit. Yeah, it's the stuff that gets us open-minded skeptics. It's other things like pictures that I've always had a hard time with. Uh, John Mueller posted a picture up in the Spectacular crew. His dad's a truck driver and there was some weird reflections and shadowing inside of the truck cab that kind of looked like there might have been something in there. And you always look at that and go, I don't know. I'm so skeptical. It's hard for me to, to think that that's anything other than just a weird reflection going on. Yeah, except for the one did look pretty clearly like a face. It did. I thought it kind of looked like uh, DC's hero Arrow, one of my favorites. Green Arrow, I guess. Oh, I should, so maybe he just has superheroes riding with them <laughs> on the road. That could be. It's a lot better than thinking you got a ghost hanging out. <laughs> exactly. The Piper House sits on the battlefield and was used as a Confederate headquarters with the barn serving as a field hospital. Today, it is a bed and breakfast owned by Lou and Regina Clark. The Clarks are non-believers and claim the house is not haunted, but that's not what their guests say. Guests see a misty apparition in the bathroom door, and they hear muffled voices in the bathroom. Interesting enough, this part of the house is an addition added in 1900. 
The Clarks cannot explain why they've experienced nothing, but their guests continue to claim experiences with the supernatural. It is believed that unmarked graves are near the house. And it's possible that you've got unmarked graves all over the place here, because I think with all the bodies, I mean, you got thousands and thousands of bodies that you have to bury somewhere, and it's just easier to put them in unmarked graves or mass graves. St. Paul's Episcopal Church was used to treat the injured during the fight. People report lights moving about in the tower and in different areas of the church. Even more terrifying are the cries of pain, fear, and death that many people claim to hear in the church or coming from the church in the evening. There's just something terrifying about haunted churches, Denise, and we've heard about a lot of them. You wouldn't think that they would be haunted, so that's what makes them, I think, so creepy. Another site used to help tend to the wounded was Grove Farm. The claim here is one we've heard before at other locations, is that the floorboards have blood stains on them that cannot be removed, even when they sanded the boards down. They have remained for 153 years. Jeez, that's, those stains and footprints and things that can't be removed are very, very creepy. Exactly, because it's like, how in the world? And I've even heard the stories, and I know many of our listeners have, that where they'll replace the floor and it comes back. It's, it's another one of those things. How, how does that happen? What's doing that? Well, that's where you might almost start thinking sometimes, like you've talked, that there might be a third dimension. So the other dimension has the blood stains, And so no matter what you build in this dimension, it's just going to kind of, you know, like, did you ever see in like the encyclopedia where you'd put down the transparent pages and it would add oh, the like human the body and stuff. intestines mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. the bones and the sure. nervous system? It's almost like that. It's almost like a transparency comes down on whatever they build new and there's all the same stains again. Wow, that's a really interesting theory. I hadn't thought about that. And... Also, just because we only think that ghosts can be residual, can a stain be residual and perpetual, I guess, at the same time? Why not? Yeah, that's a good question. And since we're talking about bloodstains on floorboards, you and I had had an interesting conversation the other day, and we were talking about going back to our Ghosts in the Bible podcast, and we had talked about blood in the ground and how when Cain kills his brother Abel, God comes to Cain and says, you know, where's your brother? And he already knew that Cain had killed Abel. And he told Cain, your brother's blood has cried out to me from the earth. When you read things like that, it makes you wonder, like with this, is the blood crying out? Are we hearing residual cries that are carrying over from another time? Are we having a time slip that we're hearing? Or is the blood in the ground crying out? And that's what people are hearing. Well, it could very well be just from that reference that you just mentioned, but also we've talked that many, many times it seems almost like the land can become haunted mm-hmm. or the land can be cursed, so to speak. And so with that much blood and that much horror and devastation that happened at the Battle of Antietam, it would make sense that the ground would somehow become cursed as well. And so no matter what you build on top of it, you would still have... Especially because this blood is not just because somebody cut their finger <laughs> on accident or something. I mean, these are people who are killing each other. And they're people who are supposed to be brothers and sisters in the country with each other. Citizens together. And here they are killing each other. So yeah, one heck of a, one heck of a battle. Has the bloodiest day of battle in American history led to hauntings? Does the blood of the dead cry out from the land? Are the soldiers continuing to knock about Dunker Church and the fields that were once a battleground? Is the Antietam battlefield haunted? That is for you to decide. Obviously, one day I would love to go visit. My folks have been there and brought us back some souvenirs from it and such. And so I'd love to uh, check that out sometime. 
Uh, first of all, Denise, we should wish everybody, uh, hope you had a nice Friday the 13th. That was yesterday. And hopefully you brought lotto tickets because that is my lucky day. So I'm just spreading my, hopefully my luck spread out to all of you. I believe it's the only Friday the 13th this year. We are going to be in Savannah over this weekend, the 14th and the 15th. Don't know if we're going to have anybody meet up with us, but we will be doing some periscoping. We'll probably make some videos and we'll do some recordings and things of that nature. I know I want to do a piece that we'll probably put up for those people who are over at Patreon and our PayPal supporters. And then our next episode is going to feature the Golden Lamb Inn. And this was requested by our listener, Stephanie Martin. We have some reviews to share with you. Five stars. Good stuff from Podbeast227. I really enjoyed the history and the discussion between the two hosts is pleasant. The things that go bump vary from show to show, but are always worth the listen. I'm glad I stumbled upon this little gem. Thank you so much, Podbeast. And there we go, Denise, another stumbler. Keep tripping people up. <laughs> Maybe that's why you've started falling all the time. <laughs> it's because their stumbling has come <laughs> through the airwaves or whatever. Indeed. McBecker25, five stars, fun show. I just love this show. Fun paranormal info. The soothing sounds of the ladies are a wonderful change of pace. I can't wait to do a meetup in St. Augustine, another great Florida podcast. Well, thanks so much, MC Becker. We appreciate that. There are a lot of us down here in Florida that are podcasters. There definitely are. Mike from Sword and Scales down here, Tanner Campbell, and his co-host Eric from Legends, Myths, and Whiskeys is down here in Florida. All right. We are so appreciative that you guys tuned in for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.